Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. I just nipped out and got some milk from the shop, and there was a kid in front of me. <clears throat> tracksuit and he mm. was clearly like he was trying to put get the card reader to work because he wanted to buy a can of coke and he kept declining it and he kept going oh I just declined it again he was clearly just waiting for the shopkeeper to say I'll oh, just take the can and go so clearly <laughs> he was never actually going to pay for it but he sounded really young so it's the kids that he sounded like his voice hadn't broken so he sounded like kind of 12 or something when yeah. he turned around, when he turned around and looked at me, he looked about 36. I don't know what has been going on in his life up to this point, but my God, he looked like the kid at the end of Come and See after he'd like witnessed the horrors of the SS. It's astonishing. But uh, yeah, so he's going to have a rich and bountiful life, I would imagine. I thought you were going to say he turned around and it was like the end of Don't Look Now. Um, Pretty much. It's close. Yeah. The sequel, did you see that then? <laughs> and then, and then the sequel after that which is uh, i can look now <laughs> yeah and then of course the remake i've seen this before <laughs> yeah i looked last time <laughs> i'm not i'm not looking again <laughs> yeah. and then there's and then the fifth film have you seen it though <laughs> I, um, question mark <laughs> any film with a question mark in the title is guess my vote or an exclamation mark even. or an exclamation mark indeed <laughs> Um, Three Amigos clearly being the best one because it's got two yeah. exclamation marks. <laughs> That's how it works. They're not exclamation marks, though, are they? It's, it's that Spanish. Upset. Yeah, it's the Spanish. I don't, yeah. I don't know what that means, actually. I, they just have it at the start and the end of the sentence, I think. But it's still the same thing. I think so. It, it's, is it so you know to be excited earlier? <laughs> I suppose, if you're reading I like in a way, Spanish it does book. make sense because you could start reading the sentence thinking, uh, this is a story about the three amigos because you only see the like exclamation mark at the end. But if you saw the exclamation at the start, I'd be like, "Yay! This is a story about the three What's amigos." So you'd know instantly yeah. to like cry out with joy or sadness. Yeah, like if you're if you're reading a like a spooky ghost story to someone and you you'd sit then you'd say, you know, and before he knew it, the ghost flew up his bum. And then you'd but then you'd be like, Oh, I'm sorry, I'll say that again because I can see the, the exclamation right now. So before he knew it, the ghost flew up his bum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Spanish <laughs> They got the right idea. Um yeah. I'm just gonna quickly go and turn the light on because it's gonna be pitch black in here in a minute. I thought it was gonna be Chronicles of Riddick. I, I said uh, I think it's gonna be Chronicles of Riddick. I said uh, I think it's gonna be Chronicles of Riddick. I thought it was going to be Chronicles of Riddick. It's just it was a silence. So I just thought I'd keep repeating it until... Uh, that's what I do. I'm a comedian. I go on stage and I just repeat one line until people, until people say, through the darkness, I say, we, we can hear you. I say, oh, okay. And then I move on to another cracking joke. Then. <laughs> um, so I'm opening everything on my PC. Um uh, on the subject of the ghosts flying up people's bums, which did tickle me the last episode we did. Uh, welcome to Kino Kingdom 74, by the way, everyone. Um, 
it, it's um it's 74 or 73 it's 73 it's, i told you it was 73 didn't i, I know, silly me. 73 I, i'm so excited i skipped ahead <laughs> um uh on the subject of ghosts flying up bums uh on that topic i was chatting with a mutual friend of ours um alex and he said oh ironically enough i'm actually on a ghost walk in clan at the moment and uh i said oh, you'll have to tell me if it's if it's any good and about an hour later he sent me a text and said well the most frightening thing about it was the price of the book they tried to sell me at the end uh and i asked him why he was on a ghost tour and he, he said it was more because he sent me a picture he was just wandering through a graveyard at midnight but it's more i think it was he wanted to learn more about local history than you know because obviously he doesn't believe in ghosts because he's a grown sensible man but it just tickled me the most frightening thing was the price of the book they tried to sell me at the end of the tour um and about ghost on, tours though like it clearly they have to be done quite sort of regularly so it'd be like a weekly or fortnightly thing so You'd either have to be very, very lucky, one of the lucky ones to happen upon a ghost, or the ghosts in question are so kind of used to the whole thing. They just turn up, you know, every week or two, which is just depressing because that means they're just part of the sad little enterprise, really. They've got nothing better to do in there. Sort of state. <laughs> yeah, it's always, again, I happen to watch... Um, Another episode of Ghost Ghost Hunters International last night as I as I drifted off to sleep as is my want to do, and and again they were just in Australia and they was going to what was it it was a oh one of those things called not like a, a quarantine encampment and it's now like a luxury resort but there's a part of it that's that used to be where they take people in and just give them like carbolic acid showers and stuff and um. And so there's this there's some like ghosts that wander around and apparently they just they're just really unhappy. I thought fucking no shit. If you turned up on, on a different continent with smallpox and then you got put in a room, burned with acid and then killed, and you'd think when they came back as a spectral entity, they think, Oh, do you know what? I'm going somewhere else. This is <laughs> I don't want to like, spend eternity reliving the last horrible few weeks of my life. And um yeah, and obviously there's a perverse uh, ghostly guard that hassles people, and they're just wandering around, just hearing what could have been like creaking doors and like wind blowing through keyholes, and completely being like, "Yep, this is really haunted." Is yeah. it though? Is it though? Is it though? Were there any moments where there was like, like an actual like photographic evidence of a ghost, and they dismiss it out of hand, and then a different scene where like some papers rustle. And they say, oh, that's definite evidence of a ghost. There was this, this I've realised how many moments there are where obviously, because they go around in twos, I guess, so no one witnesses anything by themselves. And it's quite funny how they'll be in a room and, they, and they'll say, oh, um, if you're there, um, you know, just can you whisper to us or move something in the room? And then there'll be silence. And one of them will say to the other, you say something then. <laughs> or... or, or, or what do, you, what, what do you want? And they were like, what? And oh, it looked like you waved your hand. And then, of course, they'll have to review the footage later. But it's yeah. basically a lot of people Scratch wandering around in the dark saying, are you? Are you there? Was that you? Was really that you? I mean. Um, <laughs> 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 Questioning yourself out loud. 
if I could get my random film generator to work, you know it would bring out a, it would pop out. Uh, uh, is that me? Well, how what would you, how would you envisage that? If I say, "Oh, Rupert, do you want to pop around tonight?" I've got, is that me? Is that me? <laughs> oh, well, it could be. That could be a kind of uh, a ghost comedy, couldn't it? I suppose because they comedy, comedy, yeah. Maybe they, I don't know. The 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 ghost of themselves, their own ghost is haunting themselves. Oh, is that me? Like I, glimpsing themselves in the mirror behind them. Is that me? I <laughs> glimpsing themselves in the mirror behind them and in front of them. Is that me? And then and they say to the wife, "I swear, I just saw myself in the mirror." And it's like, yeah. That's kind of how yeah. it works, love. So not as mystical as you'd think, really. <laughs> yeah, um, looking in the mirror and seeing yourself. It's not that mysterious. Um, yeah, because I was thinking of if if is that me? Like a a, a Chevy Chase-ish hand-drawn cover, a la Funny Farm, where mm. it's him in the mirror looking shocked at himself, and yeah. probably Andy McDowell shrugging behind him or something. And it would be a film about he's had like a head injury. And he's discovering what he used to be like. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's like okay. the moment he sees himself, like, is that me? And yeah, yeah he, it's like him relearning his personality and realising how awful he used to be and trying try to change it. But, but can you change? Would this be Chevy, a classic Chevy Chase knockabout comedy? Or would it be Chevy Chase's attempt to kind of branch into serious acting? It would be a knockabout comedy, but I've, okay. you can't really put the words classic and Chevy Chase into the same <laughs> sentence. No. It you, know, really... you know John Candy would rock up at some point. He'd probably be a psychiatrist or something, wouldn't he? Apart from Chevy Chase, it is not. he's not in funny films. He's in funny moments in films. Mm-hmm. So you can watch, like, say, Fletch or yeah. The Three Amigos. And it, it it's like The Three Amigos may be the... the um, What's the term that you know the, pro- the exemption that proves the rule? But I've watched. Yeah. I went through a phase of watching a few Chevy Chase films, and he's not a consistently funny man at he's all. Not. No, as in, Cops and Robertsons will yeah. attest with Jack Palance. <laughs> yeah, there's no film in which he's consistently funny, even. So that's it's, it's a bit of a problem. I've always thought that Will Ferrell is almost like the slightly improved version of Chevy Chase, although I get the sense that yeah. both of them have slightly lucked out when it comes to their careers. But um. I we've actually and this is rare for us. I mean, if you do want to contact us, it's uh, the men who talk at outlook.com. But we've received an email, Rupert. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we don't receive many. So um, I'm, I was going to read this out. Um, hey, guys, big fan of the podcast. I especially like the Welsh bloke. The other one seems a bit of a knob. Yeah. I'm a retired prostitute and was recently watching Cruising when I thought it would be fun to list the things that blokes and women in some cases used to walk up and request from me when they approached me back in my days as an active lady of the night in Dagenham, whilst brandishing cash money. I'm not going to lie to you, some of them required me to ask for more detailed specifics. Thanks for all your hard work. Listening to you both talk about how Albert Pian, uh, listening to you both talk about Albert Pian really brightens my days. And so she's listed things that I guess people would come up and, and ask her for when she was a prostitute. So I'll okay. just go through them. Don't get uh, on this show, do they? I, I don't know what um, an accent in Dagenham is, so I'll just say it in, in my accent. So it's, uh, excuse me, do you do Belgian reverse parking? Excuse me, do you do Japanese rain goggles? How much for a quick Turkish gasp? How much to whisper at the closed down bakery? 
How much would it set me back to smile at the vicar as he dances around a dwindling bonfire? How much to query the gas bill as I willfully block the fire exit? Can I fondle the defunct currency whilst claiming I'm on the correct tariff on my mobile phone contract? How much to ask the blacksmith about the peculiar eggs as he boards up the disused cat flap? How much to wring out the flannel into the jaded suitcase? For 40 quid, would you wrap an angle grinder in an oversized wetsuit? Reckon you could tease the passports back into the biscuit tin for me. And then the final one is she says, and one bloke that looked like Bill Clinton, if he was standing further away than you'd first anticipated, once said to me, here's a hundred quid, make me pull a face that makes it seem like I'm juggling ghosts whilst trying to tuck in a werewolf on a bouncy castle without waking him up. Keep up the good work. Look forward to hearing about more Godfrey Hoflix. Lots of love. Susan Quincy Pillow Mist. So thank you, Susan, Susan Pillow Mist. It's always nice to get emails from people. And uh, and some of those things, I mean, I'm I'm pretty conservative in my text. They're extremely specific. But, sure, uh, but well, I mean, I don't doubt her talent. I'm sure she's able to elicit some of those requests. Yeah. What? What? Um. Another thing I was thinking about. You know, we've obviously got the Arkansas. I was, I was thinking about maybe starting a, a branch of movie rhyming Stephen Lang. So movie <laughs> rhyming slang, like partner rhyming slang. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I've, I've, I've only got two, but I'm just going to say them and see if you can guess the full name of the actor that I'm referencing. Okay. Uh, and also, you know, can you finish the sentence? Okay. So it's freezing in here. Shut the Delroy window. It's freezing yep. in here. Shut the shut the window. Yes, Delroy. The Delroy window. Yes, yes, yes. And the second one is you're an artist. I paint as well. In fact, I just bought a new gym. It's easel. It's easel. I just bought a new. That's good, isn't it? Please with that. That is brilliant. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna have to think um, of some more of these then, aren't we? <clears throat> Maybe thousand half hour of that's a good half hour of airtime. Six six hour special episode out of that, I reckon. <laughs> um, now th- th- there's obviously I'm quite glad we had these emails and things because we've decided to to do the podcast a little bit more regularly. Um, and in Rupert's excitement in doing so, I, I was so excited over the last week of oh we're going to do them every like week or two that I forgot to watch any films. <laughs> so 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 busy lying in bed. Yee! Like lecture my quilt, and I can't wait to do the podcast. I've only watched one film, and it's Supernova, not that one. Because really? I mentioned mentioned it to someone who works. So I watched Supernova, and he said, "Oh, that film about that gay couple, and one of them is a composer um, suffering from dementia." And I said, "No, it is James Spader in space with Angela Bassett. It is a different <laughs> film." So yeah, so I'll save mine uh, because I believe you've got a theme this week, Rupert. I have got a theme this week. Uh, the theme is Middle Earth. The Peter Jackson Middle Earth films. All six of them extended cuts. I kind of wish I it's had. It's just going to be a script reading, actually. I'm just going to I'm, I'm not... read the entire script. Are you going to do different voices for each character? Uh, yes, but I'm going to randomly switch accents midway through sentences to make, make it more of a challenge. I do wish I did have a drink now because I, I'm not going to have much to add. To this as someone who's seen the films once when i was yes. drunk when they came out in what 2001 yes 2001 mm. two and three and then the Robert films in 2012 13 or 14 oh yeah i've never seen those so at least i'll get to um 
to to enjoy and learn. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll let you take over then, babe. Well, I'll I guess I, a little introduction to how I'm going to do this because it's quite a lot to get through. But yeah, it, as I said, it's going to be I'm going to be referring to the extended cuts of the films, and I suppose I'll start right just with a general point. I'm not sure we will ever see this level of indulgence in terms of cinema trilogies again. I don't really count like Marvel and stuff as a shared universe. I think one consistent story. I don't think you get it. I think you'd go, I think it would go on TV is basically what I'm saying. And uh, which is a pity in a way, because TV with TV, you kind of lose that essential limitation of time. Cause like even something like rings of power, the Amazon TV series, which was uh, based on, Tolkien's writings um it was fine but it did take an entire season to get to some pretty obvious conclusions so it was like it could have done with <laughs> a few uh barriers on it a few guardrails as they say um <laughs> yeah so and just some general comments about Peter Jackson's adaptations like there are those who complain about them in general Christopher Tolkien uh J.R.R. Tolkien's son did not like them, comparing them to fairground rides. Um, mm. Well, and I'd say, well, cinema is a different thing, isn't it? It does rely on narrative momentum and cause and effect and a co- coherent temporal editing, which books don't do so much. You know, what takes minutes to describe on a page could just be like a flick of a production designer's wrist, frankly. So, and I think we as viewers do need some kind of propulsion to move us through the world. So, and also on top of that, Peter Jackson is a very, very good director of action. So I think fair enough. Uh, that said, all six films do suffer some of the same pacing issues as the books, I would say. And but I would also say J.R.R. Tolkien wasn't really that much of a storyteller, in my opinion. He was a peerless world builder, and of course he was a linguist as well. Uh, but I think when it comes to adapting them to the screen, you have to look at the d- deviations in that context. Point is, different mediums or different media, and Tolkien and Jackson are experts in their respective fields. Uh, and I, I'll say one final general point up front about Howard Shaw's uh, music, because it's just superb throughout there's no point in picking out picking it out it's like the all the way through all six films it's just brilliant and i love the way that howard shaw uses he uses these kind of proto versions of the lord of the rings theme throughout the hobbit they're like not fully formed it's almost like hinting at uh the kind of grandeur of the uh score to come he he uses like in the hobbit films there's almost no choral pieces at all it almost like referring to a smaller scale whereas by the end of the whole thing of the the final film lord of the rings it's everything's choral it's fully choral and and it's it's just that quite a it's decisions like that which kind of make the whole symphony uh it's just sort of the pinnacle really of mainstream film scoring i'd say so that's all i'll say about that so yeah Mm. that's my set up for this i guess i'll just go straight into the hobbit because we might as well go through them chronologically and i'll very quickly explain the plot so you can keep along with that 
after this. Genuinely handy for me because I, I don't watch you don't you won't need to watch them after this. After your amazing synopsis. Uh, so <laughs> the first film is called An Unexpected Journey. And this uh, concerns Bilbo Baggins, who's a hobbit of the Shire, who living quite merrily alone and having no adventures. And then Gandalf the Grey, a wizard, uh, brings a bunch of wandering dwarves to his door. And they're on a quest to reclaim their home, uh, which is under the mountain called Erebor. Except the mountain is guarded by the dragon Smaug. So they need a quiet little hobbit to slip in steal the Arkenstone and reclaim their rightful reign over the kingdom. I uh, honestly thought you were going to say Arkenstar then. And it's close. That's amazing. That would be amazing. Arken, it could be the Arkenstar. That would be amazing. <laughs> Robert Starr plays Smaug, obviously. Um, <laughs> so the doors are led by the formidable Thorin Oakenshield, who's one in a line of kings under the mountain. He's this arrogant, self-aggrandizing, courageous to a fault type of leader. Whereas, um, of course, Bilbo is a very understated, meek, mild hobbit. And it's that central conflict, which is the spine of the whole trilogy. Uh, so along the way to Erebor, the company of Thorin uh, have various encounters. They have a fight with some Cockney trolls. They visit some elves in Rivendell. They witness mountains literally coming alive. They fight their way through a goblin city and they come face to face with Thorin's ultimate orc nemesis, Azog. They also sing lots of songs, which is something I feel is missing from the rest of the Middle Earth films. There aren't enough songs, but there they go. Um, do they sing anything by the Nolans? Unfortunately not. They do uh, a couple covers of Ortec tracks, but weird. Walking along and saying... Oh, let's sing a song to lift our spirits. And then <laughs> <laughs> the other one's like, can't we sing any Shawadi Wadi instead? So there's also a concurrent plot about Gandalf investigating a mysterious necromancer, which is basically this plot line is basically I'm pretty sure that there's this. No necromancers that aren't going to be mysterious. Are they? I know it doesn't nature. sound good. When someone says, oh, I was a necromancer in the woods, you're like, Oh, we, <laughs> get a, can we get a McDonald's drive through instead? You know, you, you know you're not going to knock on a necromancer's door. He's going to go, come in. Darling. Yes. And uh, there's also an extended sequence where Bilbo meets Gollum, uh, who at this point is the weird creature who possesses the one ring, uh, which, of course, will come into Lord of the Rings later on. Is he looking so, as um, bedraggled as he is? Was he's I not know. looking great, to be honest. He's looking pretty <laughs> rough. Um, yes, so I suppose you should mention this is set 60 years before Lord of the Rings. Anyway, so there, right, okay. I'd say that this is the most whimsical of the six films. It takes like 40 minutes to introduce the dwarves, and they're a very merry bunch. So you get songs, and you get a fair amount of slapstick. Uh, and really, the film is saying from the outset, this is very different to the darkness of Lord of the Rings. Um, there are a few slightly sucky moments. There's a scene where they have to like, they get chased by wargs, these big wolves across um, some open land. And it just, it looks bad. CG doesn't look great. It's poor as an action scene geographically. And uh, yeah, and I'd say they need, it needs, takes a lot of time to convince the audience that Thorin and, and his 
friends aren't simply after gold that there's some sort of deeper purpose because it does sound a lot like they just want to go to the mountain and get a load of cash back to be honest um <laughs> not cash back like not like you know, at the a- atm at the top of the mountain of cash back. Um, they get there and it's like hang on this charge is 125 not, uh, i'm not going to be using this atm <laughs> um so yeah i it it does work at socks off to convince us that this is a, a good idea and also the idea that they would go and recruit this completely random hobbit with no burgling experience or inclination which doesn't really make any sense at all but hey here we are but, why don't they, if, if they're looking for someone's they're dwarves so surely they're the same size as hobbits so why don't doesn't a dwarf do it you'd they... think so because they'd be well no because they're kind of they are dwarves but they are burly and loud and they stomp around the place i think the hobbits can slip by practically unseen that's the idea mm-hmm. i mean yeah i mean you do eventually see why it is why this happens when he actually meets with smaug so it kind of makes sense but at this point you're like this doesn't really make much sense anyway this film also includes though one of the top three scenes I'd say, in any of the films which is the riddles in the dark sequence and that's the riddle contest between bilbo and Gollum. and it's just a great showcase for martin freeman and andy circus to show off their talents and it's at this point you realize how much more interesting bilbo is as a character than frodo because of course frodo is the one played by Elijah Wood in Lord of the Rings. And I think the reason why... So who's Bilbo played by, sorry? Sean Martin, Astin? Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Yeah. So what, what, what? So apologies if I interrupt, because I genuinely don't understand these films at all. This riddle contest, is it literally them, like, riddle me this, riddle me that? Why is yeah, Batman so, such a twat? So, so basically, Gollum's threatening him, and in order to get out of his presence, uh, he has to win a riddle contest. So they kind of... They're going back and forth. Um giving each other riddles to solve kind of vaguely reminds me of the kind of insult battles you get in monkey island secret monkey island it's that kind of thing where it's all very like cerebral anyway yes so bilbo he is a more interesting character than frodo because um he's more interesting because he's on this journey without a specific purpose i suppose oh hang on so he's the one played by ian holm in the yes so now hey, I think I right yeah. okay i'm with you i'm with you yeah so he's he's on the journey without a specific purpose it's like he's the only one neutral enough to see the common goals of the various peoples of middle earth and and i suppose it's it's precisely his lack of power uh and his kind of ordinariness which makes him the perfect kind of ambassador for this journey you see what i mean because all the rest of them are either, you know, two, they're either like mighty warriors or you've got Gandalf, who's this enormously powerful wizard. And there's this point at which Gandalf makes this speech about what it is that actually makes a difference in the world. And he talks about everyday acts of goodness that makes a difference. It's like it's not great acts of sweeping power. It's just people being decent to each other. And of course, Bilbo represents everyday decency. So that's why he's along for the journey. So it's quite a nice concept. And Freeman's performance is just really nuanced. He's got this very naturalistic delivery, which everyone else in it is very over the top, very melodramatic, very operatic. He is extremely naturalistic and it gives this kind of subtle weight to his speeches. 
and I think it works really well. And does he sound like he's got a cold? Oh yeah, obviously. Mm. Smart improvement. Why wouldn't he? Um, but yeah, and I, what else do we get in here? We introduced the style of action you get from this trilogy, very over the top, uh, very kind of knockabout, almost slapstick in style, and quite different to the Lord of the Rings heavier, more grounded style, I suppose. Are there any massive buzzing spiders in this? No, that will come in the second part, so don't worry about mm, that. Um, but yeah, overall, I'd say the first film is a slightly uneven but enjoyable first part to the trilogy. Um, I mean, I can go straight into the next part if we want, and we can continue please, the journey. No, please don't enjoy this. I'm actually keeping up with it, which is nice. Okay. I thought I would be baffled because, like you say, I know that there are multiple books and multiple media yeah. incarnations of it and i thought i would be bogged down in law i don't get but it's pretty yeah it's pretty keeping it step. simple there is yeah um so the second part is called the desolation of smaug and here the company of thorin uh on the run from azog the orc i mentioned before so they take refuge in the house of a shapeshifter called bayon who directs them to murkwood uh which will eventually lead them to lake town and then eventually to Erebor, their final destination. Now, problem is, Mirkwood is a massive forest and it's problematic because, yes, it's full of giant spiders. Um, mm. Well, I mean, is Erebor a character in the, one of the video games? Uh, that name sounds vaguely familiar. Possibly. It wouldn't surprise me if someone did have that. It's, uh, but here it's a mountain. Um, so, yes, so I'll mention the spiders in a bit, but we'll go back to them. But they, anyway, they're rescued by some elves um and these wood elves they're quite a resentful bunch so they actually uh keep the dwarves captive but they manage to escape they head downstream and they stumble upon bard who's kind of like a bit of a hero type character and he takes them to lake town uh, which is kind of like a floating town on the lake uh Hence the name. Oh, and I it's, that, yeah, I see. Like you said, not the greatest writer, but a good word builder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely brilliant. Genius. Um, so, yes, and, it, and, it, and it's a very depressed place under the presence of a malevolent master, played by Stephen Fry. And, and from there, the, the company will head to Erebor to face the mighty Smaug and reclaim their Arkenstone. However, Smaug is not best pleased at being woken up, and he has a habit of spewing fire, unfortunately. Um, so, yes, so Lake Town may be in a spot of bother. And this episode also sees Gandalf delving deeper into the mystery of the necromancer and comes face to face with the entity's power, and it turns out that the entity has intention to claim the Arkenstone for himself and destroy Thorin's bloodline forever. So this is where really, as you could tell from that very brief synopsis, this is where the most ground is covered, sort of the core of the adventure. It's a lovely production design, especially in Mirkwood and in Lake Town, which has this wonderful, like crooked ye olde architecture. Again, second reference to Monkey Island, it looks a bit like Melee Island with all, you know, like the kind of twisted beams and stuff. It's very cool. Um, so that's nice. Um, so I mentioned that uh, the previous film had the Gollum confrontation. This one has the Smaug standoff. Um, you might have seen online, if you haven't, it's worth checking out Benedict Cumberbatch's like otherworldly acting 
for when he did the dragon because he did this um kind of uh what do they call it motion capture motion, yeah that motion capture type stuff uh, for the dragon he suddenly did not phone it in and it's quite intriguing and once again it's like martin freeman's naturalistic style conflicts directly with this very operatic grandeur of smaug so that's how, how big just to give me an idea how big is smaug is bigger than a shed <laughs> wow <laughs> smaller than buckingham palace <laughs> yeah, got, got that in my mind yeah really <laughs> painting a picture here he yes, is that was described in the book <laughs> the, the approach to the ship the, jesus he's bigger than a shed but but smaller than buckingham palace said he's another bigger than my old man's shed but smaller than buckingham. yeah really taking you out of it totally anachronistic just like comparing it to real world stuff brilliant <laughs> great writer as i say um so <laughs> so uh yes so this well, more on smog in a minute but Everything in Mirkwood is great because it, it's really a chance for Jackson to hark back to his horror roots. Because, of course, Mirkwood is just like this really, really confusing, claustrophobic place. Uh, and it's quite a long sequence. And then it culminates in this these grotesque giant spiders, which are just awful looking um, and genuinely quite scary. So that's cool. Um, there's a couple of sequences in this movie that uh people hate well i mean people hate the hobbit films but they particularly hate the barrel riding sequence and the smaug chase at the end because uh, they're very over the top action scenes um and there's a lot of criticism of the kind of master and his lackey in uh lake town as well because it's sort of comical theatrics pushed too far arguably and then there's criticism of Legolas, who turns up in this. He's the uh, uh, the elf one from, uh, you know, uh, Orlando Bloom's character. In he turns up in this. Um, so there's him. He's criticised for being too cartoony. And there's a new character. Who wasn't what, what happened to Orlando Bloom? He's still hanging around. I'm not sure if he's doing TV. Or, uh, yeah, I I haven't seen anything. When you say he was too cartoony, what is it? Because you've got you've got well, naturalist acting from Martin Freeman. Everyone else is so how surely we just fit in I, with everyone else? It's more like he does a lot of quite uh, athletic action sort of thing. There's a lot of kind of like blips and sliding down stuff and slightly gravity defying stuff. Uh, and there's also this new character called Tariel who wasn't in is a creation of Jackson's and she's basically a strong female character so uh, uh, it's always going to be problematic with some people is so, that, were there not many strong female characters in the original books then? No, they were not it's fairly conservative in the way that it kind of depicted male and female roles I mean they were powerful women you know Galadriel was ridiculously powerful but um, in terms of like warrior types not really We'll get to that when we get to Lord of the Rings, because there's a really irritating character in that who's just indicative of Tolkien's inability to write these sorts of characters. But yes, um, but yeah, Legolas, I mean, I'd, I I'd find it quite fun. I mean, in Lord of the Rings, he does shield surfing and he slides down an elephant's trunk and stuff. So, uh, and as for Tariel, this new character, uh, yeah, as I say, she's making up for Tolkien's inability to write decent female warrior parts, really. She kicks ass and she delights in kicking ass. And that is a quality unique 
in all six films, frankly. And then you've got Luke Evans as Bard, and he's wonderful, old school, hyper masculine, no nonsense hero, strong moral core. I liked him. Now, I'll just return to Smaug before we finish this one off, because Smaug is possibly the most misunderstood character in the trilogy. And one specific criticism is the position of Smaug's demise in the narrative, which may sound like a weird thing, but you'd think, I mean, it's not really a spoiler to say that he will be defeated at some point. You'd think his defeat would come at the end of the second movie, but it doesn't quite happen like that. Is pushed to the next chapter. But I think that's missing the point. Like, Smaug is emblematic of the lust for power that lies in the heart of Thorin Oakenshield. That's the, that's the point of him. He, perhaps it's the lust for power that lies in the heart of all who are would-be king. He's got a, a so-called dragon sickness, and that is really the ego of run amok. It's this rampant narcissism and self-importance of the very worst kind of celebrity. And the killing of Smaug, the physical creature, is neither here nor there, really. It's more like the beast is already unleashed in the form of that destructive desire. And Smaug's death, really, all that does is displace that desire to Thorin, who will then start suffering this dragon sickness, this sickness of greed. Um, So he's really just an emblem, which brings us to the Battle of Five Armies. I'll just finish off the trilogy and then we can take a break. But the Battle of the Five Armies is the final part. Stop being a girl, get your skirt up, we'll do the whole thing. (laughs) So Battle of Five Armies, uh, this portrays the big showdown at Erebor the Mountain. And Thorin is there and he is now he's back he wants to jealously guard the mountain but others in the world want that arkenstone and they want the riches of erebor uh, you, you think, i think you just said arkenstone then <laughs> Did I really arkenstone? yeah well, let's <laughs> just call it the arkenstone why not well, stop messing around yeah clearly more important um so yes others want it the elves and these terrible orcish armies and there's another set of dwarves from the blue mountains um, I'm trying to think who the fifth army is because there are five armies. Maybe there's another Orcish army from Gundabad in the north. So yeah, anyway, five armies coming out, coming down for a grand old dust up, and <laughs> lots of giants and flying creatures and absurd contraptions of war. Sounds and, cool. And this is where the kind of conflicts and rivalries build up, built up over the last two films, are resolved not least the psychological battle between Thorin and Bilbo. And there are some pretty shocking deaths in this one, actually. Deaths which are skimmed over in the book, weirdly. Um, in fact, the book pretty much skims over the entire battle. Um, well, but, again, uh, not a great writer, but uh, good to draw a map. a great cartographer. Uh, yeah, brilliant. I mean, it, the page numbers were completely correct all the way through. But yeah, so, um, and then Gandalf plus a troop of, pretty rad superheroes gets his own showdown with the dastardly necromancer so anyway is he played by anyone i'd know in the film the necromancer yeah he's more of like a shapeless mass although willie is played by benedict cumberbatch well, you can't really hear him he just kind of grunts more than anything um so anyway yes well, so, so he has smog and the necromancer yes 
but because the necromancer is such a like smaug is very talky very erudite like the necromancer is just like a big yawning grunting shape in the sky um oh my dad um so the actual battle titular battle if you like um especially in this extended version is insane i love its imagination and and the inventiveness and the monster designs i love the way that the these orcish armies just keep introducing new bigger more grotesque and twisted monsters into the fray um but i but also more than that the context of the battle is was well done because this is where thorin and his dragon sickness the greed i mentioned takes over and he has to learn through the intervention of bilbo what the meaning of leadership actually is and it's really intriguing and like peter bradshaw of the guardian mentioned these scenes do have equal dramatic weight to anything in lord of the rings no matter what people say this is good drama and i do think actually that thorin oakenshield his character arc is he's kind of like the the kind of swashbuckling hero character in this movie i guess um so the equivalent of say aragorn in lord of the rings bigger mortensen's character i think that thorin is the more interesting character than aragorn because aragorn is the reluctant leader who must learn kingship if you like and it's a great performance he, he also but, must learn to wash his hair more thoroughly <laughs> he really must um yeah he could at least wash it in a river um but uh yeah and and vega monster is a very good performance but it's a well-trodden trope this character isn't it i like that thorin thorin's arc is the opposite it's like he begins as the grand king in bloodline anyway and gradually learns to be humble so it's sort of the opposite and he's very much a king when we first meet him in his own mind at least he's just utterly devoid of humility and he feels safe in the assumption that he'll walk into Erebor and claim his rightful place dragon or not uh, it's just like the thought of him at the start of the film like <laughs> as they start off you know this huge journey that the first night he's like idly poking a campfire with a stick and leans to one of his cohorts and says, "It's like you are. I hope there's a lot of fucking fibers in that mountain. I'm gonna put them in my bucket." And then, and then towards the end of the film, it's them all running another camp, all weary and bearded, and he's like, oh, "Do you know what? I'm not as bothered about the fibers now." And that's his arc. <laughs> that's pretty much it. So you have seen it then, direct quote. Um, yes. Yeah, so. His they story. just came in and surprised me with a large glass of wine as well. I didn't know we had it. It's fantastic. Amazing. I can put up with another three films now. Um, yeah, so his story is really about the madness of rampant ego, really. And it's interesting. And uh, yes, and there's only one ending to this movie. And Bilbo's <laughs> final line is lovely and simple. And what, what do you mean there's only one ending to the movie? Oh, we'll come to that. Because Lord of the Rings famously has like multiple... like endings you think oh it's ended now we keep going oh so you don't mean not like not like um yeah. not like there's different apps it, it, you mean it ends yeah do you mean extensions as opposed to multiple endings I, I well don't i think i mean i don't really i don't really see it as a you mean i think lord of the rings actually wraps itself up quite nicely because you have to wrap up all the plot plots when you've got so many of them yeah and it's such this a, it's is such a more a, linear uh, these are more linear films so you know it ends it ends in a very nice way and a, with a very nice line from 
uh, Bilbo. So that it's yeah. And then the setup for Lord of the Rings is complete, and I like the way it comes right to the point where you know the next movie is about to begin, sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. I'll take a brief break now because we've gone through one trilogy. So nice. So I, you want me to talk about Supernova, is it? Uh, can you please? I, I'm desperate. This is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, well, so this one is is really interesting. I, I will I will go through. Um, uh, I, w- I will have more films next time we do this. Um, but what this film, right? So my my, my brother Transvaal, he you know he gave me Dracula three thousand, which was uh, absolutely classic. Uh, well, I thought when I put on Supernova, which I remember from the video shop, it's a film. It's it was really really interesting actually because as I was setting up for this episode, I opened up the Wikipedia page and I watched this film completely blind. And after we finish, I'm going to read this Wikipedia page because the issues in development, the fact it's got three directors and multiple writers, and it was just sold off after it was finished because it was so bad and then released two years later, it, it makes sense after seeing the film, because I'll, I'll get on. into that later. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, and I'm looking at these three directors. Yes, yes. Do I? Can I mention who they are? You can please say their names, because I just found out myself. I mean, Walter Hill is top, although credited as Thomas Lee, I'm guessing because he didn't want to be uh, associated with it. Jack Shoulder, don't know that name, but Francis Ford Coppola, he's the third one. You've you've heard of him, haven't you? Yeah, I have. He's done a couple of movies. Oh dear, Jack Shoulder is a retired American director, best known from his work in Alone in the Dark, Nightmare on Elm Street Two, The Hidden, and Wishmaster Two. So I don't think we need to look at. I I say that I'll probably have his entire career on box set in the in the next couple of months. <laughs> Thanks, Karen Transvaal. Um, yeah. So again, right? You're looking at this. You the cast. You've got James Spader, Angela Bassett, Robert Forster, Lou Diamond Phillips. Good. Robin Tunney, who's pretty. Um, and yeah, directed by Walter Hill and Francis Ford Coppola. You've got all this. It's a 19 million dollar budget, and this is a film from 2000 as well. Plus, it's a horror film set in space, three years after Event Horizon. So y- you know that people watched Event Horizon and said, yes, Britt really likes Revent Horizon, and he's going to like that film beginning with P, not Prometheus, that I always forget the name. Pandora. Pandorum. Pandora. Uh, I like simple horror set in space, right? So I got this, and I, and I thought, well, I like James Spader. He's got a great voice, so even if it's just him talking for two hours, I'll enjoy it. And it's really, really bizarre. So the plot of the film, it starts off, and, and they're, they're sort of a medical vessel floating through space, and they just... They go on these six-month tours, and they're in this, this ship, and they're bumbling along in space. And every time they get a distress call, they go there f- to, to supply medical assistance. So you've got, <coughs> excuse me, James Spade is the co-pilot. Angela Bassett is the, the, the sort of head of medical. Robert Force is the captain. Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, Peter Facinelli, uh, Robin Tunney, and some of the Wilson crews are kind of navigators and um sort of engineers and that sort of side of it. And Lou Diamond Phillips is a bonking Robin Tunney as well. Um, and, 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 and it starts off and you, and it's in, in about five minutes, obviously the, the special effects are, I say, obviously they aren't great. Everything's got this weird and natural glow to it that makes it just look like it's done on Omega 500 plus. <coughs> um, 
but when it goes into the the ship and the characters it everyone's introduced really nice and cleanly so you've got james spader is a little bit he's sort of a new to the crew um he's replaced the other co-pilot and he's very sort of monosyllabic keeps himself to himself angela bassett is no nonsense robert forster is you know, a, a sort of solid leader lou Diamond phillips and robin tony bonkin and the the sort of head of tech is a guy called wilson cruz is is trying to get the artificial intelligence of the ship to try and take on a more human ai if you will kind of trying to do what list is doing to Crichton effectively um in red dwarf so but all this is set up really cleanly and really nicely and i thought right completely on board with this and the setup for the for the, the main thrust of the plot is that they get a, a distress call from somewhere they have they have to travel through they have to dimension jump to get to and apparently when they when they dimension jump um you go in these sort of cryogenic pods and off you trot and there's an extremely low percentage chance that basically you'll just burst and go inside out so they don't really want to do it but it's their job and that's what they do so they all go in these pods they dimension jump and when they come out the other end you'll you'll know what this is much more than i did i had to look into it they get first of all they get up the pods and everything is going bonkers as in like the ship is saying have a look out the window because you've dimension jumped right next to a blue giant about to go supernova and and then robert forster <laughs> and he, he really didn't like this he's gone inside out and it's it's really buzzing because he is it it's like his veins are outside of his body and they've welded to the glass and angela bassett is desperately trying to save him and he keeps on just saying kill me because it's i was thinking angela even if you get him out of there right he is not going to be playing squash anytime soon so um and she sort of mercy kills him uh and then they put the reverse thrusters on and no one really trusts james spader they don't trust his motives and he just says look we have to we can stay here for 17 hours and 11 minutes that's how long the thing takes to charge um, but it only gives us an 11 minute window before that blue giant explodes so all they have to do is basically just stay there and then this other vessel that they came there to rescue approaches the ship and a guy gets on so up until here i was completely on board with this film i thought oh this is this going to be an event horizon beta because it's so snappy and yep. uh, you know everything's everything's really clear i'm the plot is it's got that sort of you know uh almost a who done it in space kind of feel to it M- mixed Getting a feeling your expectations yeah. can be dashed quite well frequently. the way i would describe it it, it is is like the, the, there's two writers on this film and it's like the first writer said right this is the premise this is the setup this is the cast we managed to get together and this is what we're going to do and then he handed the sheaf of paper to another director uh, sorry another writer whose eyes nearly faced in the same direction one on the fire escape the other perhaps on, on his dvd copy of robocop 3 on the dashboard of his fiat 500 and the film just completely and utterly falls apart uh, and and, and I'm tempted to give it to you to watch because it's actually quite impressive how how much okay. it just completely disintegrates in in, in your hands because everything mm. goes out the window. It it turns from this everyone giving each other side eye. Are we going to do it? The tension, a lot of threat, there's mistrust to just people shagging, and mm. I, I, and it's like well, and there's so many. There's about four or five sex scenes in this film. Um, um, there's no bearing in mind that time is kind of of the essence and they've got this going on it it cuts to them all in different parts of the ship mm. 
almost in like love triangles and stuff and all doing it yeah all doing it and 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 like not only suddenly having huge shifts of personality and values of trust but also acting as if they've known each other for, for years having entire relationship arcs in minutes and it's it's almost like it's like right we just now now we've got an hour left we just need to get the end of the film and it's just as pacey as possible so I, I may as well I'll spoil the film because you know no one's going to really you know watch this unless they're interested in it anyway they're not here for the story so the guy who comes on board I, I, what's his name he's kind of a handsome 90s looking guy I think it's Peter Facinelli yeah Peter Facinelli um and he comes on and he claims to be someone else and they say why did you claim to be your father i think it is they said because no one knows me you'd have just let me rot in space it's not worth the risk but obviously my father was a hated but respected veteran and you would have come for him and he's kind of right but then he just starts putting the crew against each other but in in ways that is completely utterly transparent like he'll like he'll go to um uh, Robin Tenney with, with like Lou, Lou, who's in a relationship with Lou Diamond Phillips and they're trying to have a child sort of thing and he just says oh do you want to see my cock and she's like, nah. and he's like oh, but but I know you, I've got this skill it's not mind reading and but it's kind of knowing what people are thinking and you want to see my cock and, and she's like she's like yeah a bit actually yeah but he and I, I they it's not verbatim but that's pretty he walks in naked with a billy on that's acknowledged like he walks into a room naked with a billy on and he's like i know you want to look at it it's like but yeah so the, and then like he, a fish to fry at this point yeah yes uh, can you put some kegs on and go away should have been a response but bear in mind she's in love with Ludama phillips and they're planning a child and then some some bloke who she's just met, who is really mysterious. He's really laying on the um, ooh, a mustache twirlingly mysterious man with ulterior motives, pretending to be someone else that no one knows. And um, and he she she he says to her, I'll tell you what, look, why don't we have a shag? And then if afterwards you don't you feel bad, you can go back to him. Um, but then if afterwards, you know, you will like it, then we'll do it again. And that literally sways her. Mm-hmm. That one sentence from man she's met moments ago sways her to completely throw a relationship away. Um, they find out there's this there's this weird ninth dimensional egg that is basically a bomb that if it explodes will end the universe and reshape human life as we know it. So obviously the first thing the first thing you that Ludovic Phillips, Phillips can't wait to get his fists all over that, let me tell you. He's so distraught after seeing her flirt with this bloke, he's like, right, I'm gonna go and fondle that ninth dimensional egg and I'll teach him. Um so ninth, yeah, oh, ninth dimension. Ni- the ninth dimension. So what is it? Bloody so the th- you've got you know the second dimension is 16-bit platformers on the Mega Drive. Well, the third dimension is is Bubsy the Bobcat 3D on the PS1. What is the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth? Oh, isn't the fourth dimension is time? So beyond that, woo, who knows? It's a specific. My, my fists have got to be one of them. Well, it was um, one of the dimensions. I think that's probably yeah, the third. Three <laughs> 3D fists. Yeah, no, I've got the most amazing like 3D fists. They're not flat <laughs> at all. Um, Actually, on. Uh, ninth dimensional matter uh it just tells you what dimensions are it doesn't go up to the ninth um okay uh, yeah so anyway throughout all this the only person who basically is isn't swayed by him like swayed by his advances mm-hmm. is james spader who is really focused on the mission and he gets he goes down to get more fuel from the planet that this dodgy guy came from and that's when the guy says actually i'm here to get this ninth dimensional leg back to earth 
sell it and just become extremely rich. And it's, I thought this is again more bad writing, isn't it? Because it's, it, it turns out that he basically is psychic and can, can see what people, and he's like super strong and he's getting younger. He is the father from the start, but he's getting younger because he's so healthy. This, this egg, the, the, the more people around it, they get more intelligent and get these powers and stuff like that. And they can reroll limbs and whatever <laughs> through oh, dodgy CG. Movie, yeah. But, but then his plan, and it's brilliant because his I thought so his plan, all this this ninth dimensional egg that he's he's kind of is being controlled by that is beyond human comprehension, this completely dangerous universe ending bomb. And through all of this extraterrestrial intelligence that he's been gifted, he's going to take it back to Earth and flog it for money. And and, and like completely just like wasting its power. And <laughs> When he James Spader says this to him as he comes back on like a sit on some vessel that the other guy forgot about, when he's this bad guy's shocked that James Spader's found his way back on the ship, James Spader just in a in a in a in a segment where he's just sort of calmly talking to him because he's just like in transit says, "You're just gonna take it back and sell it," and you realize that like in killing off the crew and trying to kill me, you've basically just completely left yourself stranded in space with no crew no way to get back and no fuel and so you can't even do your plan which is bad anyway and then it cuts to the bug and he actually frowns like oh yeah <laughs> so it's like the writing the writing of the plot doesn't hold up to close scrutiny at all and it's called out in the film itself um so they end up having this like fight which is it's kind of cool it's sort of uh james spader turns up and he's in a um a sort of a an exoskeletal thing to sort of keep up with this guy's strength. But there's a problem, isn't it? Because they're fighting in the cargo bay and he... There's a lot of has... ideas taken from other movies. Yes, yes, it is. Adventure. Meta movies. Um, there's a bit where he gets this guy who's completely can overpower them and or not effectively con- um, control minds. And he, he's got two arms on this exoskeleton suit. One of them is kind of this fork that's obviously meant to hold things. And the other one is a pneumatic scissors that's meant to cut through sheet metal and stuff. And so he, he cuts his arm off, oh. grabs him by the throat with his fork, pins him in the corner, and then sort of snaps the arm off the exoskeleton and leaves him there. And I thought, why don't you just cut his head off? Like, yeah. why don't you just cut his head off? You've cut his arm Snip off. Snip him off with your scissors. Yeah. Cut, cut, dead, problem solved. But again, more bad writing. Um, and then at the end of the film... Uh, it, it ends with them just about to dimension jump away, but there's only one pod, so there's even more of a chance they'll meld into some horrible, gloopy mess a la the end of... Um, is it Church? Or is it What's that film where there's uh, deep un- unpleasantness? That, at the end, that 80s horror film where everyone like melds into a load of like fleshy oh, glue. Society. Society, not the church. Um, but they hug each other, and when they go back... Not only do they come out fine, James Spain, Angela Bassett, but the computer says, oh, oh, and you're pregnant as well. Yeah, right. That's, that's nice, isn't it? Okay. Um, Not surprised. Everyone's been shagging. Someone's going to get the, pregnant. There's literally four or five seconds. The only thing about the ending that I thought, oh, that's actually quite cool, is that the bomb does, they t- to save themselves, they have to set off this ninth dimensional bomb and they just escape it. And the computer says previously in the film, there's two parts actually I want to say uh, that I thought was mild cleverness, probably the other writer stepping back in. 
one is the bomb going off and them saying if that bomb explodes the explosion after you've dimensioned it will reach earth in 51 years so even if there's like the best possible outcome they've bought themselves half a century and then they humanity will be dead as will the universe that's quite cool and the other bit is when the guy first comes on the ship and he's trying to get angela bassett on his side because she knew his dad he says he initially says my father died very suddenly of an aneurysm and then and he starts talking to her. And when it becomes clear she's not buying his story, he sort of changes it slightly um, a few minutes later in the film and says, oh, you know, um, my father, you know, during his illness, he would say this about you. And it's not really acknowledged in the film. As she sort of looks at him and the camera lingers on her face for a second as if to say, you said you died really suddenly earlier on and now you've changed your story slightly. And it's never mentioned. And I thought, oh, that's quite nice writing. You know, it's not drawn a bit of, subtle, yeah, a bit bit of subtlety, subtle. but it's yeah. just it's just buried under this like absolute mess of a film. So it's not good, but it's by default my film of the week. It's only what I've seen. Um, but I do think that people should seek it out. Yeah, because it's I think people like yourselves who have a history uh, come from a um, an academic media centric background will really rip it apart. But from someone like me as a total layman who likes horror films set in space, it's just an intriguing car crash. I'm just going to see if it's available on any streaming services. Oh, yeah. I, I've got it on DVD, so don't you worry your head. <laughs> yeah. For the sake of our customers, though, you can watch it on MGM via Prime. Um, <laughs> or you can rent it from any of the usual services. Um, I read out one sentence from the Wikipedia entry for this film. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> when he took over editing of the film, Francis Ford Coppola put together the zero-gravity sex scene between Angela Bassett and James Spader, mm-hmm. using outtakes of the zero-gravity sex scene between Robin Tunney and Peter Fascinelli that happens later in the film. Mm-hmm. With, Sounds with right. Tunney's skin colour being digitally darkened. So there you go. Amazing. That's it's, how they did it. They, did, it's, they added a sex scene by cutting together parts of a different sex scene uh, and blackfacing on the actors. Brilliant. Yeah, it's it's preposterous. The, the way that, that she cannot stand James Spader, Angela Bassett, and the captain has just died, like her, her sort of senior officer that she's known for decades has just died. She is distraught. And he turns up to show the speed of the plot. He turns up the next scene after Rob Forster dying is um, James Spader turning up at her quarters. And he says, oh, I've got a bottle of pear brandy. And then she has one drink and then they just get it on. And then she's pregnant. Uh, and it's like, She's supposed to be this sort of hard-ass, no-nonsense, you know, the sort of um, central figurehead of the crew behind the captain, the one who's like level-headed, and she's just she just pulls her knickers down the moment anyone pours her a shot of sambuca. So she's brilliant stuff. She is a pretty woman, yeah. So is James Spader. Not now, not now, but uh, yeah. then he was. He is buff in this film. He's been to a is gymnasium. He? Yeah, he's like really ripped. That's weird. Okay, I don't. Yeah, never really. Yeah, he was. He had a a moment, didn't he? In the I suppose the ninety. Well, there was Stargate as well. He was in. And Wolf, obviously. Yeah, he had a moment when he was sort of quite mainstream. But he never really suited being a mainstream star, did he? He was. He didn't look like a mainstream star. Let's face he's, it. He's he's got wonderfully dead eyes that works in this when he's got that sort of that rich monotone and his kind of wide-eyed stare. It does work as if like is he is he working against them is he put on this ship for any particular reason but of course he's just a hero really feels like these the talent behind this film is better than the output somehow yeah 
Um, okay, let's talk about the Lord of the Rings trilogy then. <clears throat> um, so it starts with the Fellowship of the Ring and Sauron, who was banished to the east in the last movie, has returned and he wants the One Ring to rule everything. Um, the One Ring, of course, is currently with Bilbo in the Shire. Gandalf the Grey learns that his old wizard mate Saruman is working for Sauron. And um, so Gandalf comes to the Shire, tells Frodo to take the One Ring and get the hell out of there, basically. And with nine dreadful Nazgul in pursuit, these horrible like hooded riders, Frodo leaves the Shire with his three hobbit mates and goes to hook up with Gandalf's mate Aragorn. Um, uh, played by Viggo Mortensen, then in Rivendell, the home Gandalf's of mate. I was seeing this. I was written to them, but Gandalf says, "Oh, go and see my mate." Oh, my. He's literally. Well, he might as well say, "Go and see my mate at the pub," and that's exactly what they do. Um, oh, really? The prancing pony. Um. So yes. So <laughs> they uh they end up in Rivendell, home of the elves, and the decision is made to take the ring to Mordor to Mount Doom to destroy it. And there are lots of competing interests um, in this. Lots of people who want the ring and other people who want it destroyed. But only Frodo has the courage and purity to carry it to Mordor. So the Fellowship of the Ring is born and it now includes the likes of Boromir, um, played by, uh, played by Sean, Sean Bastard Bean, um, Gimli and Legolas, and off they trot, smashing up orcs and Uruk-hai to escort Frodo to Mordor. But uh, the ring does corrupt. Uh, one of their group will end up tearing the Fellowship apart. Now, Fellowship or the Ring, I think this is the best high fantasy movie ever made, in my opinion. And I think... This, the first... Um... I think Fellowship of the Ring is the, the best fantasy movie, yes. It's, it's so good. It's so pacey and it accomplishes its world building without doing a disservice to the main narrative thrust. Like it ebbs and flows without losing momentum. Um, and we'll talk about where that doesn't work so well in the sequels. Um, but it, it feels epic, but it also feels basically grounded. It's very physical and dirty and grimy in a way that none of the other five films could manage. Uh, yes. Love it. Brilliant film. Uh, and it was followed up the next year by The Two Towers, in which, um, well, the fellowship is scattered and Frodo and Sam, uh, played by Sean Astin, they're on their way to Mordor and they'll soon be guided by Gollum, who still covets the ring, but he'll go along with them. Um, and then you have the other hobbits, Merry and Pippin, they take a lengthy excursion into Fangorn Forest to hang out with some talking trees. Well, I, I, who, is, who, who, who plays Merry? Merry. Oh, I can't remember their name. Oh, OK. Because I, I thought that was... They have recognisable actors, but I cannot remember names off the top of my head. Um, um, yes, what else? Yes, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, they're looking for Merry and Pippin and their journey will bring them to Rohan. Realm of the Horse Lords, uh, one of whom is Carl Urban. Let's not forget that. And good, they need to expunge Saruman's magic from the king uh, in Rohan, 
so that he might stand up and protect his people from the oncoming orc army. And it will all culminate in the Battle of Helm's Deep, which I think is this series' best big scale battle scene. That's cracking more on that in a bit. But so Fellowship of the Ring had this relentless propulsion. The Two Towers, it does tend to stop and start like an old car. Um, like, <laughs> like a, like a Rover P6. Basically, yes. Um, the scenes with the talking trees is called Ents. They are initially endearing, but they utterly take the wind out of the events at like Helm's Deep. I mean, the joke is about these talking trees is it takes them forever to say anything. But OK, you made the joke once, but they just keep making the same joke. And it's just real drag. Um, Gollum, I mean, this is 2002. It's amazing CG creation. And not only that, but his dialogue with his two parts of his personality is very compelling. Everything involving Rohan and the city of Edoras and King Theoden is fantastic. Bernard Hill is superb and very, very kingly as Theoden. And I like how his character is secretly kind of very subtly mentoring Aragorn in kingmanship, if you like, without Aragorn actually knowing. And there's real depth and complexity in those scenes. And Peter Jackson captures the sort of agony and mournfulness um, about the falling of this realm um, very well. It's very cool. And then, yes, Helm's Deep, which is this huge battle at the end of uh, the film. And it's a it's a total game changer in action scene. It's so it's it's the it's a build up apart from anything. It's this use of like tension and dread because the odds are so ridiculously stacked against them. And so there's such a sense of tension to it. What are the odds? Just to give me an idea of the scale. So basically the the remainder of Theoden's kind of realm, the last dregs of uh, the people of Rohan basically all gather within Helm's Deep and the caves underneath. It's this fortress in the mountains. And but they've already been completely decimated by uh, Sauron's armies. So and now he's sending this colossal force of orcs against them and they're just massively outnumbered and it's just the way that he builds tension it's all done at night so that's pretty cool and that but it's the use of like kind of like it's the editing and the way that jackson knows when to have kind of music and when to cut music out completely and just have sounds and the actual action is really cool as well it's just like a really cool action scene so i think it's um i think that's great a great scene but yes there are it's that momentum the fellowship of the ring has such a nice flow to it and it just gets starts getting kind of a bit stop starty in two towers i would say so it's not quite there and then you get to return of the king which is, is there is there a scene in um when the the orc army is assembling where mm-hmm. the fellowship get together and <clears throat> Like sort of Frodo gets up and he's like looking at the orcs and he's like one, two, three, four, five, and then someone's Aragorn says, "Oh, what are you doing?" And he says, "Well, I was just going to count the orcs while we wait for them, but um, I can only count up to sixty-seven." And then Aragorn yeah. says, "My God, this is fate because I can only count from sixty-eight to two hundred and four." And then Gimli says, "Well, wait because I can only count from two and then and then eventually they count all the orcs by holding hands and like like counting together." uh that was yes that was a deleted scene 
Oh, that's didn't nice. Quite, yeah, it didn't quite scan on the screen somehow. It was weird. By yeah. our moment, they're just yeah, counting like, orcs. I think maths is so rarely uh, sort of a sexy it's, concept in films. Yeah. It's tension building. It's rarely used in narratives in our weird. Um, Return of the King is the third film, uh, and it is over four hours long. It's a pretty big beast. Well, actually, uh, speaking of that, how long were the previous films, including The Hobbit? Have you have you got those to hand, the, the lengths of time? I actually do have them to hand. I thought you were going to say don't. <laughs> do not. No. Uh, well, no. I mean, I've got the overall lengths of the trilogy, uh, but that doesn't really tell us much, does it? No. Um, yeah, so... That's fine. That's anyway... Fine. Uh, Maybe just be Hobbit is significantly time, shorter it? than Lord of the Rings, put it that way. Uh, okay. You'd expect that, really. Um, so yes, Return of the King. Final battle is approaching, and it'll take place on the fields of Pelennor uh, and the city of Minas Tirith. And Aragorn and his crew must walk the paths of the dead to recruit a ghost army to turn the tide of battle. So, hang on, so just 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 for my purposes, so the mm. the the, the yeah, battle of the five armies from the Hobbit, you have got the battle of Helm's Deep as against orcs. So yeah. who what's this final battle? Who was that against? More orcs. This is against. Yes, this is pretty much everyone. This is where Sauron says, right, that's it. I've had enough of you, little like use human and elf buggers. I'm gonna come down there and really really give you a ticking off now. And so he sends like everyone you see um, one of the things that bothered me and this is from my memory is like <laughs> sauron is like he's got such a who voices sauron anyone we know or is it just a voice actor know. you know because he's know, that i'd realized i i found out the other day that the mouth of sauron who's kind of like a kind of grotesque uh humanoid spokesman for sauron okay. um it's played by bruce spence from uh mad max road warrior um Good. And well, but yeah so, so and, it, and it makes sense just, now so the eye of Sauron then is is yes. that eye that's like darting yeah. around, having a little peep at everyone. Yeah. What do you ever see his actual physical form? Well, what is? I don't understand what Sauron is. Is that is he a god? Like why is it just an eye in the sky? Um, I'm not really sure. I guess that's explained in maybe um, the books, not specifically Lord of the Rings, but maybe maybe some of the first or second age books that Tolkien. Wrote, I mean, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are set in the Third Age, but there are also like mythologies from the Second and First Age. So I suspect he harks, harkens from an ancient age, I would imagine. But Harkens stars harkens to the star. Arkens stone. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to. Um, I, I might look. I might not watch these films because it's a huge undertaking. But I will. I think I might read up more about it. But just because the, it's like you said, really, it's not the narrative and the drama that's grabbed me. It's just the cool ideas, effectively, cool characters. So I just yeah. want to know more about them. I did. I like. I like Tolkien's approach to his idea. His concept was to create a kind of British. I think he said English, like mythology, um, sort of, you know, like a kind of Norse mythology you'd have. He wanted to create something which was kind of quintessentially British. Had he not heard of like Robin Hood or King Arthur? <laughs> I guess not. Or maybe he just thought they sucked. Maybe he just saw Patrick Stewart desperately trying to get a sword out of stone and thought, bloody hell, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, and doing a little fart as he strains. Yeah, it was yeah. A, 
yeah, I want a creature in English mythology. And then someone said, oh, what, like, what, like King Arthur or Reverend Hood? No, no, one that doesn't suck cock. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I love the idea that you would have seen Patrick Stewart, even though he literally died before that. Um, so, it's 1980, wasn't it? <laughs> he is straining. I've only seen that film, that scene, not the film, but he is really trying to get that sword out of the stone. I like that movie, Excalibur. Um, so, anyway, yes, so Aragorn and his crew, they need to walk the path of the dead to recruit a ghost army to turn the tide. Meanwhile, Frodo and Sam must get past Shelob, the giant spider, who you'll remember only too well, and yeah, get yes. over to Mount Doom, just as long as Gollum doesn't spoil their plans, of course. Now, meanwhile, the steward in charge of Minas Tirith is, uh, sort of like, as in, not the king, but just sort of like caretaker. He's a maniac and he's a coward. So a lot of the drama behind the walls is all about effective leadership, really, and just like, or in this case, being a terrible leader. And that is, that's what, it's all about what it is to, is to lead, what it is to be a king. And so it's sort of all about the title of the film, really, um, it's fair to say. Um, and I think uh, it's, I think that Return of the King might be my least favourite of the Middle Earth movies, to be honest. It's kind of bloated and a bit repetitious. It feels more like TV pacing, you know? You know, when you're thinking, you're watching a TV studio, you're thinking, this is padded, this is this is just long for the sake of long. And so, like, Fellowship of the Ring, it cruised smoothly, and then Two Towers, kind of like a bit of a sputtering old car. This one is like a gorgeous BMW without an M- MOT going, like, 0-60 in two hours. And I think... Like most of the first hour is people finding different ways to say war is coming to start. And and you contrast that with like Battle of the Five Armies, where war is absolutely not inevitable, in fact. And so there's some genuine drama leading up to the battle. And the Battle of Pelennor itself is grand in scale. And Jackson does his best to identify the kind of human moments amongst chaos. But it's also got a lot of like unlikely dramatic beats in it. Like there's a scene where like Gandalf, who's pretty much like on the front line, you know, leading the charge against the enemy, you know, rallying the troops and stuff. He suddenly buggers off, withdraws from the front line to save one dude, the steward's son, who's already half dead. It's not really a priority in terms of the bigger picture, but off he goes. It's like, I'll see you later. You sort this out. I'm just going to bugger off upstairs. Um and there's and there's oh we've got to go on to Eowyn as well this is I mentioned her earlier she's sort of like the female warrior character in this and she's contradictory but not in a good way I'd say like she'll shift from being like a very forthright courageous sounding warrior type to a complete blubbering mess in the space of a single scene uh, and, and it's it's kind of epitomised by her face-off with this main Nazgul dude at the end. Like, she's cowering on the floor in this scene. She's about to die at his hand. Um, but then, like, someone stabs him in the calf to distract him. 
And suddenly she's on her feet and she's whipped off her helmet for a cool action movie one liner. It's like just a second ago you were crying. It's like what happened in those two that, seconds? That just seems like bad editing. It is, but well, we'll get onto that as well because there's an even oh, worse okay. bit of editing in a minute. But um, and then she's weeping and crying again a minute later, and then she falls in love at first sight with with uh, another character, apparently, on a battlefield. Like, now, just afterwards, she's suddenly just you know she's not traumatized. She's just like suddenly a weepy kind of like desperate for love kind of mess straight afterwards and it's like this desperation to give us an interesting female character results in just a, a new neurotic mess of a person it I sounds think. like she's like the multiple characters just rolled up into one and well, so, yeah, so there's a woman yeah, in the film i think there's possibly a bit of that going on like desperate to like try and almost like encompass in her as many interesting female characteristics as possible uh, but it doesn't really make sense as a character but yes, you mentioned bad editing, um, bad writing. But this is this piece of bad editing, right? There's so this all happens on the battlefield where she's like um, stops crying for a minute to kill the dirt bad guy, um, and then it kind of cuts away to something else, and then suddenly it it cuts back and her um, her brother, played by Carl Urban, good, he's on the ground weeping over her body and it's like hang on she was just alive a second ago we literally just saw her alive and he's weeping uncontrollably for her and it's like but she was just alive a minute, a minute ago wait where what happened to her did she just collapse did she cry too hard did she just like wet all the liquid out of her body what's happening <laughs> it's weird like everything to do with her is just flawed put it that way um she's a good what actor she, miranda also was, and, was she added in after is it when you watch the film mm. it was she like a minor character and then they edited scenes afterwards I like i don't know whether they were trying to up uh, I, I mean i know she, i mean she does do these some of these things in the book she still has that face up at the end in the book but it does seem a bit like desperation to have some sort of like unconvincing love triangle with aragon it's like he's not interested love stop it just stop bothering him he's got more important things to think about than you like fawning over him every two minutes anyway going back to tariel and the hobbit who i mentioned earlier she gets a lot of flack but she's a far more convincing flawed female warrior than aowim is so put it that way i'm guessing she doesn't feature in this because it's 60 years on so she's not. yes yeah well yeah and she was made up for the hobbit movies so okay other things that piss me off about this film everything to do with paths of the dead and the cursed dudes because basically it sounds go, cool yeah it's and it's build up to it is really cool because it's like oh you've got to go through this kind of, it's almost like a test you have to go into the paths of the dead and convince these ghost warriors um to basically come out of retirement uh, find their honor again um now it's, <laughs> it, I, it, when you say they come out of retirement are these ghosts like we know them now from like ghosts of this international way they're like well we can't come and fight this epic final battle because we're far too busy being in 80s horror films where we like push hammers slightly on a table when no one's looking so they hear a slight scratching sound behind them and then query it yeah basically yeah and um yeah i, I all the paths of dead stuff is it all feels a bit second unit to me like the effects are super cheesy and 
and then it just doesn't look good like the, the kind of green phantom stuff it doesn't it looks really cheesy and cheap and I, it, it's like why would they suddenly change their ways and fight for aragorn i mean all he does is shout at them and then suddenly they're like oh, all right then they're like brutal thieves and murderers these guys at suddenly burdened by guilt for some reason suddenly so quick to find honor and it's like well i'm not convinced so why would they be like, he must have shouted at them really loud yeah but the thing is like i'm sh- i'm sure all this stuff is covered in the book but it's not portrayed in the movie so it doesn't count i don't care i'm not convinced in the movie and it looks it's a bad visual they are a bad visual they don't make sense and it looks terrible on the screen as far as i can say um so there we are sorry but it's just bad. Um, sorry, Mr. Tolkien. Sorry. Well, I, I blame Jackson for that one. But uh, it's like the special effects. It's like, um, you know, in Frighteners. So you have that kind of spectral effects, almost like it's sort of like, it's like heavy makeup with a kind of sheen of like ghostly mist across them sort of thing. You know, that kind of, those kind of visual effects. It's very much like that. Worked in Frighteners here looks pretty cheap I, I like the i like the thought that someone would have been in the cinema watching the Re- lord of the rings return of the king and then at some point in the four hours they would have thought to themselves uh ah, prefer jake boosie basically they should have uh, all been played by jake boosie <laughs> weird it's a variety of wigs um and then you get to yeah, the multiple endings and uh yeah, and, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, to be honest, because they've built up so many different like plot threads and stuff. Um, although I do think the actual ending involving Frodo is... He makes a wonderful speech in the book, and they just don't bother with it at all in the film. It's all just like... Seen, that's a very strange decision. Yeah, well, there's some really nice writing in the book, but... A lot of speeches and stuff but you don't but this one felt like it could have stayed in there but instead they just have kind of slightly sentimental get gazing into each other eyes sentimental gazes was some so did he get well, the books were written chronologically from the first stage to the third so did he get better as a writer as they went on uh well i mean hobbit was the first of the middle earth books and he actually i think he went he wrote Lord of the Rings afterwards, but then went back and rewrote The Hobbit, as far as I know, to make it fit, obviously, the mythology and that. Did, uh, did he do anything else talking outside of these books? Yeah, he did quite a few. He did. It's quite scattered, the rest of his writings. He did. Um, he did The Great Tales, which is a series of three books, which are kind of stories from Middle Earth. And he, of course, he did The Silmarillion, which is uh, a that was a first age book so that was all about the kind of uh but, it, but it's creation all in this, of the it's world all this world is created yeah that was very i think so really i've not tried that one because it looks too heavy for me that's very like like really going primeval and like the creation of the world and stuff um anyway but yes return of the king i, I mean it sounds like i hate the film but i really don't the actual it, it is a good film and the realization of like Minas Tirith is just astonishing and the lighting of the beacons is one of my favourite scenes in any film ever. It's so stirring and cool. Such a good visual. It, it doesn't. I, what does that entail? It doesn't sound particularly stirring. <laughs> it is essentially where they're desperate to. If they can light these beacons, um, then w- what it does essentially is like 
one beacon is lit and there are there will be another beacon like a hundred miles away on a mountain and they'll see the first beacon lit and they'll light theirs and then the next beacon will be lit and essentially what it does is connect the people of middle earth so they know to come to each other's aid so it's like a very much like a it's a cool idea and and it looks incredible and it's very epic and howard shaw's score is ridiculously good in that sequence so that's great shellob great sequence really disgusting um I like the depiction of Mordor. Yes. When, they, when, they're light, when they're lighting all the beacons, does um, Diana Ross's on Chain Reaction come over the top, or does Howard Shaw, does he take over the score? Uh, no, it is actually Diana Ross. In <laughs> Although I, she, I think they the, lost the license, so Shaw had to come along couldn't with, afford with the some license. crappy orchestral music instead. Well, the dwarves could have sung it, saved them some cash. They love a sing-song. With, um, yeah. with uh, Shallob, what always gets me about that is it's Elijah Wood she stabs, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the be- It's the fact she gets him in the belly button. Oh, I know, and you know it's, it's, it's not going to be like a needle, is it? It's going to be like a big fat. Oh, like oh, it's, it's the, it's, if it was like off center, it's the fact it's in its belly button. It's like oh, that's, buzzing. that's really buzzing. I don't like that at all. Um, yeah. So yeah, Mordor is really cool. Very hellish. I like mm. the goofy Legolas stuff where he's surfing down the trunk of a giant elephant. Great stuff. Uh, everything involving the steward of Gondor and his son Faramir is very well played, dramatically speaking. And I think, given the scale of this movie in particular, it's a marvel that Jackson's able to keep things vaguely coherent. So he never loses his grasp. Um, so that's impressive. And in the end, oh my god, Faramir is played by David Wenham. That's fantastic news. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, I'd say in the end he brings the whole saga home, just about. Kind of like, it's like the spacecraft that left Earth, perfect and sublime. It kind of returns to returns to Earth, burdened with space detritus and a bit rickety and a bit shuddering, but it's still intact, so he does land it. And, um, so yeah, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I mean... I have some things to say about in general about these films because like when they adapted Lord of the Rings, Jackson and his co-writers, they made some bold choices about what to remove. Um, famously like Tom the characters of Tom Bombadil, the scouring of the Shire, uh, which would have been ridiculously huge diversion. So understandably, they got plaudits for, you know, cutting it down. Uh and then you get to the Hobbit, where Jackson get he does not get plaudits for uh, expanding or embellishing the Hobbit. Um, so, which I think is a bit unfair because I think he he's made with the Hobbit he made a better story, more fleshed out story than Tolkien's book, and I would argue a more focused and coherent story than the actual Lord of the Rings films as well. And Enough, that does make sense because if you think about it, I have never read any of these books and I've, I've only ever seen the trilogy once. Can you imagine if Peter Jackson said, Oh, you know, this um, J.R. Tol- Tolkien, these, these really loved books, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a trilogy of films on it, but I'm gonna expand on it, I'm gonna add stuff. People would just blow him, just eat him alive. So it makes sense that like he, he does the Lord of the Rings 
And then he's in a position where he's got the trust of the fans. And he's like, right now, I feel I can like add little embellishments and put my own little stamp on things. You would think so. And bring it in line with the Lord of the Rings films uh, in terms of like scope and tone and stuff. Yeah, that's how I would. Yeah, well, that's the way I feel about it. And I I do think the Hobbit trilogy, it is better than the book for several reasons. Like. For a start, the actual central quest in The Hobbit is given more moral weight than it is in the book. So it's not just about reclaiming treasure, but it's about reclaiming honour. Number two, we get to see what Gandalf actually does um, when Tolkien has him randomly buggering off in the book. In the book, he just goes, he just disappears for chapters on end for no reason. But we see what he's up to here. So that's cool. Stuff that was referenced in the Hobbit book is given full life in the film, like the stone giants, the living mountains. That's a cool sequence. Uh, Bilbo actually gets to play a part in the final battle instead of literally sleeping through it like he does in the book. I mean, he does get knocked out, to be fair. He's not just just having a nap. One of the things that uh, he's just, oh, before we go to this battle, I'm just going to have nine Nurofen plus I'll be back in <laughs> half hour um you I remember you talking to you once and you were holding a book and I said what's that and you saw it's the Hobbit and I was surprised because it was thinner than Pete Postlethwaite's hair I just assumed it would be this huge tome but it wasn't no I mean the Battle of Five Armies is like I don't know how many pages but it's a handful of pages uh and it's very quick to just say you know in a couple of sentences oh such um this character, this character, and this character died. Um, and of course, Bilbo. Oh, Bilbo was asleep. He got knocked out. She seems like, again, that that seems like incredibly bad writing. Well, I mean, to be fair, this was a children's book. I mean, it was designed as. A oh, it's a. Ch- I, I, no, I, I'm. Yeah, in so all fairness, not, I'm, I'm approaching this whole what you're not going to have sextology through the medium of the darkness of the trilogy I've seen. Yeah, you never. It was. Yeah. <clears throat> It's you're not going to have like grotesque like descriptions of bear things and stuff. Um, but yes, well, that's one thing that so again, hang on, films do are, do better. Fans is, is, are this impassioned over children's yeah. books. Yes, but it's Tolkien, isn't it? But and I think part of it is the notion that as soon as you start embellishing and expanding on someone else's work, then it it becomes fan fiction, which is true. But then. Converting anything from one medium to another is going to be fan fiction to an extent. Like there are massive yeah. changes between the Lord of the Rings books and the films. I think the difference is is that it doesn't. The films, Lord of the Rings films, don't really add much of significance. You see what I mean? Um, we, we we've talked about this before. As far as I'm concerned, whenever anything is adapted to any of the medium, it's just an interpretation of it, and right. it's like you, you can still love one and and ignore the other, or you know, it's fine. Yeah, except they're completely different mediums. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I also think that The Hobbit serves as a good prequel to Lord of the Rings because, of course, it can be the case that it can kind of taint the other if it's that bad. But I think it serves actually a really good purpose of being a prequel to Lord of the Rings because just little details like we get to understand why elves and dwarves hate each other and therefore why Gimli is like he is in Lord of the Rings. We witness firsthand the power in Hobbit we witness the power of high elves and wizards so that we come into Lord of the Rings with that knowledge in mind and it gives those characters extra weight because in Lord of the Rings you're just kind of told that a Galadriel kicks ass but in the Hobbit you get to see it so that's cool 
we get to see the birth of Sauron. So uh, that's kind of like this is it gives you a bit of a backstory to the main enemy in Lord of the Rings. Um, we get to see Saruman, who's Christopher Lee's character, as an actual decent person, um, albeit someone who's admiring of great power and cynical of everyday power. So not just instantly evil like in Lord of the Rings, but you actually get to see where he's kind of the beginning of his arc towards evil. So that's cool. Um, we we understand more why Bilbo finds it so hard to let go of the One Ring, because of course we see his relationship with him all throughout the Hobbit. And what does the ring, is what the does the ring actually, of What does it actually do? The ring? Because I've seen people fondling it, but I don't know what it. <laughs> it's it's the One Ring that um, it's well, it's the Lord of the Rings. I can't remember how many rings there are. Ten. Anyway, so, it it's it's it we it grants the user the ultimate power basically. So it, it's sort of emblematic of the ultimate power in a in a in a local way. It gives you invisibility, but it also it gives you such enormous uh, power that it it feeds off your soul essentially. So, yeah, but I, we've seen Gollum. Well, look, I, I don't yeah, like, it, does, does anyone it, put the ring on and then it does something? It makes yes. him invisible. So. so Lord of the Rings. So, so it also gives you essentially eternal life. So as long as you're, I don't know whether you have to, you have to wear it, but anyway, the power of it gives you eternal life. So for example, Gollum used to be Smeagol hundreds or possibly thousands of years ago. He was a kind of original proto-Hobbit. And he got hold of the ring and he held on to it for all these hundreds of years and turned from being a hobbit type thing into this grotesque, like crooked, pale, covetous, greedy, quite insane creature. So although he can live forever, which is a pretty handy power, and I guess turn invisible whenever he wants. Uh, he's also completely mad and kind of pitiful, very much pitiful actually. So really, they should have just—if they knew that—they should have just like seeked him out and said, "Oh, actually, can you go to Smaug and nick his stuff, the the Arkansas, because then you're invisible and save us a lot of hassle." Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does. It shows. So it it kind of obviously it shows why Bilbo doesn't want to give it up anyway. Um, we also learn why Gollum is so distrustful of hobbits. We, um, and we sort of get a reason for why the eagles in Lord of the Rings were less present in Lord of the Rings because their two interventions in the Hobbit, uh, enable the Battle of the Fire Armies, and ultimately they have to put an end to it. So it's sort of like it gives you a reason why they would not really be too keen on coming back because the people can't behave themselves. So, you know, it gives you all these little um, details which flesh out and improve the story of Lord of the Rings, which I think is good. And, yeah, and I suppose... uh, a final thing i think i think there feels like there's more at stake in the hobbit in terms of the main characters 
Um, so overall, I personally think the Hobbit movies are the equal, at least, of the Lord of the Rings films, and I find them more watchable, rewatchable now. I think they've grown in stature and time, uh, whereas my adoration for the original Lord of the Rings trilogy has slightly dwindled, except for Fellowship, which is still just outstanding, I would say. I don't understand it makes it sound like a shitting on Lord of the Rings, because it really was a, an exceptional achievement and a milestone in mainstream cinema, which changed blockbusters forever, because it meant that mass audiences showed that mass audiences wanted serious themes and deep world building and concurrent plot lines and complex characters, mythic themes and long run times. I, I honestly think like Peter Jackson paved the way for like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, really. Which kind of sounds like faint praise, given how yeah. Marvel honestly. But I appreciate there are Marvel fans who adore that universe as much as I do Tolkien, for example. Uh, in, all, in all fairness, this yeah, I, I mean Marvel. I mean, I, I, with the, with the Marvel films, it's I got much more into say for instance David Gamble uh, sticking with the fantasy theme, like David Gamble books and the the world of the Witcher games, even the first one with the controls were the greatest enemy. Like I I was completely that was my Lord of the Rings like the the world of the Witcher completely sucked me in for three entire games and all the DLCs and I can understand people like really really getting involved, but yes, so I can yeah I can understand why they they want things to be a certain way and enjoy things but it's um <clears throat> I think I'll just end up revisiting these books more than films probably when my son is older and I, I end yeah. up, if he get, goes that way and I'll read them to him or he'll want to watch them and I'll sit there and think oh, I've never actually seen this so I'll do it but I, yeah, you, I, I mean I, like... I know we joke about Tolkien as a writer but he is actually a really good writer by the way I just don't think he's the best storyteller as such I think he, he his descriptions and things are incredible there's a there's a scene in Lord of the Rings book where I think it's Gimli who's describing he's literally just describing uh these crystal caverns and it's just pages of him describing the beauty of them and, and the detail in them and i just thought obviously that's unfilmable but it's a really cool just a beautiful bit of writing it's almost poetic so he can his descriptions are amazing but i yeah just the narrative thrust isn't quite there and but going back to the lord of the rings films yes i don't want to make it sound like they're bad in any way but i and they improved the general standard of blockbuster films, I would say. Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans, notwithstanding. But, you know, um, <laughs> uh, because it was so much better and so much more committed than anything really produced up to that point. So much more uh, ambitious as well. So, but I just think it's time for The Hobbit to be applauded, or at least spoken in the same breath. It was, it was it not applauded when it was released then? Oh, I hate it. And part oh, of it, really? I wonder if, because usually the trajectory of these things are, is that, uh, you know, the sequel gets darker, sort of thing. If we imagine Lord of the Rings as one film and then Hobbit is the next one, it's like, well, you're going from something which is incredibly dark and foreboding and heavy to something which is, like got songs in it and it's very whimsical and it's got yeah. like slapstick action and things and you, you are a but you're a bugger for whimsy rupert well yeah i do like a bit of whimsy i, I just but i love all the especially in you know like the ridiculous battle scene at the end of the hobbit and it's like 
all these new creatures coming along with these ridiculous contraptions attached to them and it's just so silly but it's so enjoyable so love it but jackson gets the balance right as always between like the comedy the action uh and the horror so yeah if it is fan fiction then i like it so got to get the balance between comedy action and horror just right like when i'm in bed with a woman rupert um do you uh, one of the things you mentioned you mentioned um uh david wenham earlier on whom i fancy and i realized that david wenham is just a better version of donald gleason um yeah. We, I was thinking. Well, I, obviously, I, I'll let you do the Arkansas this week. Cause I've only done watch one film, and it just seems unfair to come rocking up with the next one. But I would like to do one at some point. I might try to do it myself, like Donald Gleason to David Wenham. I like a side Arkansas of, you know, <laughs> actors that just look like each other, and can you link them up? Um, What's wrong with yeah. Donald Gleason to uh, David Wenham? I mean, we could do that. Oh, we, could, we could do that. It's just not. I suppose he's yeah. David Wenham's in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay then. Donald yeah, Gleeson well. to, to David Wenham. But um, we'll do the other. We'll do the the last week's arc. So we've only because we've done this so quickly. We've only had one response. Adam, have you done it? I have. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. So there's two responses. But any closing before we close out? Any further thoughts on Lord of the Rings and or um, the Hobbit? No. They're good. They're all good. Watch them all. End to end. Uh. You know, stop bitching. Still better than Rings of Power. So oh, is it the should... TV show? Yeah, which is okay, but I just, I, it's just long and drawn out. And I know that sounds ridiculous, given that these films are like <laughs> three or four hours long. But there is at least some guardrails there to keep the pace going. Uh, but I do think that the Hobbit, I find the Hobbit films more watchable, rewatchable than Lord of the Rings these days. But maybe it's just fatigue of Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, you've you've had 20 years of them. Uh, with uh, I was going to talk about a something on the Savalas. I saw the first episode of a David Tennant show called Inside Man, and yeah. I made some notes. I'll, I'll save that for next time because, wow. But um, <laughs> so I just like because I I said to fail oh, this is going to be like I've only got one film so it'll probably be like an hour long be done by like ten o'clock and then obviously you said right let's talk about two trilogies <laughs> let's talk about two overly long trilogies um it's been fantastic just sitting here listening and learning and I am gonna lie in bed and have a whoa, Wikipedia and have a look at uh, the Wikipedia and just to learn more about the characters and some some lines of dialogue you mentioned and that so thank you very much for that Rupert. Okay. The Arkansas last week was Annette Benning to Erica Alaniac. Yes. And we've had one response. I think this hope maybe maybe if we get others before this one is up tomorrow or Saturday, I will edit it in. Either edit in or I'll, you know, um put it at the start of the next episode so people can hear this. But so we had from Max, we had the Arkansas. He did this with um initials. So I had to kind of work out who they were, but I think I've got it. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's and so-and-so's SLJ. It was with TLJ, but I, I've worked it out. Don't worry about that, but I went to school. Um, so Annette Benning is in Captain Marvel with Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson is in Captain America with Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones is in Under Siege with Erica Alaniac. So that's three steps. What's the, what's the middle one with Tommy Lee Jones? So in the middle one, uh, Samuel L. Jackson is in Captain America with Tommy Lee Jones. I haven't seen Captain America. I, I assume that's a- accurate. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I think he's like the army. He's an army dude, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Tommy Lee Jones is an authority figure. I know, it's weird. That's weird. Why wasn't he like a basically playing Two Face like he was in Under Siege 2? What's wrong with that in he Under Siege 2? playing a college team. Um, <laughs> I have seen a film where Tommy Lee Jones plays a college teen, actually, from like, it must have been late 60s, I guess. But it's weird. <sighs> he rocks up in the movie, like just someone's dorm room, and it's like him at the door, and it's like, whoa. That's Tommy Lee Jones, and he still looks about forty-five, even though he's maybe seventeen. Just like Walter Walter Matto. I was yeah. I was over my nan's house once. Forever eighty. Yeah, forever eighty. When I was over my nan's house, when I was like, um, it must have been when I was in my twenties, and I've always like because the, the the running joke I've always had is like, oh, you know. My <laughs> like my ball bag looks like Walter Matthau's neck, and what I remember being in my twenties and seeing her watching a film clearly from like the forties or fifties, and he's still like a bloody jittery old man. <laughs> yeah, he looks like he looks like a tree that's been struck by lightning and had someone's thrown a lot of black paint over it, and they've just gone at it with a hatchet and they're drunk, and he's twenty. So yeah, a, if you can strike a match on your own throat, you're in trouble, basically. Yeah, although you've got quite a useful party trick. Um, so, yeah. uh, well, my my star is Erica Eleniak, who's in Under Siege with Tommy Lee Jones, who's in JFK with Kevin Costner, who's in Open Range with Annette Bening. Was that was that three or four? That's a three. Oh, it's a three, so it's a draw. So it's yeah. 40 to the audience and four to you now. Um, I feel like I w- Tommy Lee Jones should have been in a film with Annette Benning, but I don't know, because I do it all from memory. So I was, no you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be at the start of this podcast, but I I fell asleep like an old man earlier on for like a few minutes. And as I was drifting off, I was thinking, oh, do you know what? For a change, I'll try and do the Arkansas. And I kept on, because my mind was sort of clouded, I was drifting. Um, I kept on thinking, right, Eric Alaniak is in Under Siege and Tom Lee Jones, and then you got you, uh, Tom Lee Jones, you got Steven Seagal, blah, blah, blah. And I kept on thinking, is, is Steven Seagal in a film with Gina Gashon, like Nico or Hard to Kill? And I kept on getting fixated on that, and I thought, right, do, do, do the other way, do the other way. So Annette Benning, the only film I know her in is uh, American Beauty, and I thought, right, you've got Chris Cooper, you've got... Um, uh, Kevin Spacey, you've got Thor Birch. Is it Zachary Quinto? No, you're thinking of Wes Bentley, maybe. Is Wes, Wes Bentley. Bentley. Yes, it is Wes Bentley, now that you've said it. And I just kept on getting locked, and I thought, this must be what it's like for our listeners. It's it's really irritating, because your mind goes into like a, 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 like a loop, and you think, I can't can't get away from... I know. I can't get away from Chris Cooper. You, you, think, uh, you become fixated on some link, so you're like desperate to get to an actor. And you finally do mm. it, and you think... Why, why was I trying to make that connection? Why was yeah, I trying well, to get Chris Cooper? No, How is no, that going to help me? Now I'm stuck on the island of Wes Bentley. I don't know. I don't know where to go from here. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll have to. Um, I'll have to. Yeah. I, I will start. I think I will start doing them because it's the first time I've sat down and, and actually thought right, I'm going to work this out. It's it's quite fun. <laughs> Should have realised this over the last seventy three episodes. Um, um, also, David Wenham to Donald Gleeson. Yes, David Wenham, Donald Gleeson. Um, I, well, last thing as well, um, as I type that down, I'll try and do it myself. Um, okay. I was thinking about calling this episode Talking Tolkien. Is that is that how you say his name? Is that even right? Talking Tolkien, yes. Talking Tolkien. Yeah. Is that 
the worst. Talking with an apostrophe at the end, sort of with no G. I, I wish I could do a screen grab. There's an apostrophe. There's no G. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Right. right well, David well, good. Donald Gleason. I'm not sure how you spell his name. Probably. So, uh, obviously, just sort of the absolutely final thing, My I, by default, it's Supernova. I'm guessing for you, it's the first oh, or sure. third Hobbit film. Uh, well, I think Fellowship of the Ring, in terms of like which one I, I think is the best, but I I think Battle of the Five Armies, I think it's a really cool, crazy movie. And I think it rounds off the trilogy nicely. It's satisfyingly, so I'll, I'll go with that as a an underdog. Well, until next time, Rupert, go and watch some shitty films. All right, I'll watch some films of lesser quality next time. Hey, it's Tia Career, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys!